be in Judges chapter 2 tonight. Thank you guys for coming out. Judges for Samuel, you know, it all runs together. We just kind of started back in, or no, we started in Joshua. Yeah, that was, that was many moons ago. Joshua and then Judges then rolled into Ruth for Samuel chapter 2. Um, work has value. All work has value. I think that is established really from the beginning of the Bible. God worked for six days, took one day off. Um, your work may be in the home or out of the home, but work has value, not just quote-unquote church work. God made us to work, to produce, to create. Uh, as long as it's not uh, illegal or immoral, has value, and it gives us a chance to work and do our best and shine for God. And while it all has value, some work, I think we would agree, takes on a special importance because that work can really alter the course of a person's life or people's lives. Uh, there is sort of life or death sort of work, and somewhat, uh, I think, was prayed for tonight, Jim, praying for the veterans. Those are people who, that's a life and death sort of thing. Uh, and you, uh, I guess, for example, you probably won't give a lot of thought to who your server is at Olive Garden. I hope you treat them well. I hope you tip them well. Uh, they're working hard. They deserve uh, a living wage. Um, but you'll probably roll with whoever they assign you at the Olive Garden. Uh, but if you need a quadruple bypass, I bet you'll do a little research on that. I bet you'll talk to some people. Uh, I bet you will choose a heart surgeon who is not conducting their first quadruple bypass or their sixth quadruple bypass, but hopefully their 200th or 600th or 2000th, right? I mean, someone that knows what they're doing, that woman or man really needs to know their stuff because they're going to stop your heart and do surgery and then hopefully reboot your heart. I mean, it's a life or death sort of thing. Uh, your airline pilot, kind of the same idea. We don't give as much thought to who's sitting in the cockpit, but we certainly trust uh, the airlines to have done that for us and for them to have put in their thousands of flight hours and their certifications and everything. Um, because if, you're, you know, if your server at the Olive Garden is ignoring you and watching cat videos, that may annoy you, but it's not going to kill you. But if your pilot of your airplane is watching cat videos instead of paying attention to the instruments or instructions from the tower or conditions outside, that could kill everyone on the plane. So it's kind of a different deal. Um, so all work has value, but not all work has, let's say, the same level of responsibility, the same impact on whether people live or die. Um, I was thinking about the stories I was working this week on the that you guys probably saw online or on the news about the, 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 the doctor who was filming herself, right, singing and dancing while she was doing surgery in the OR and got in some trouble for that. Um, in fact, a lot of lawsuits against her. Turns out that is uh, something you can be sued for. Got her license revoked by the state of Georgia, I believe, because... While dancing is nice and fun and everything, maybe while you're operating on me, I don't want you doing that. I want your attention on the, the situation at hand. And I think my job, it kind of carries some responsibility to it in a different way. It's a spiritual responsibility, but I've been called by God to preach and hired by this, these elders to preach here. 
And, uh, and so my work is, you know, let's open up the Word of God and let's hear what God has to say to us and challenge people, inspire, instruct about following God and growing His disciples here. And the idea of not doing that well kind of makes me shudder. Um, I'd much, I, I need to go do something else, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to not take that job seriously because souls are impacted. And I think about, you know, in, in my line of work, and if you'll just indulge me a little bit, I think you'll see where this is going as talk a little bit about what, about what I do. But there is a point to it tied into, into 1 Samuel chapter 2. But uh, in my line of work, I mean, you're affecting people's spiritual journeys. Um, if, I get, if I get caught up in a sin, if my marriage blows up or something like that, I mean, it could bring shame on the church. It could cause people to stumble in their, in their journey of faith. And so um, that gets us to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Tonight we're going to talk about some men who were in positions of great responsibility, spiritually speaking. And they were essentially asleep at the wheel. And they were kind of putting the soul of Israel in danger by the way they were conducting themselves on their job. Uh, the names tonight are Eli, high priest of Israel, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, um, who were priests, uh, lieutenant priests, serving under their dad. And so backtracking, we talked last week about a woman named Hannah who was exemplary in terms of her faith, her belief in God, and her commitment to the things of God giving what she had prayed for, what her heart had longed for, this child, Samuel, giving him to the Lord, to the service of the Lord. And so he is, Samuel, we're going to see, is working with these guys as well, although his trajectory is quite different from theirs. And so this mother, Hannah, um, never loses her faith. And, and even though she has been infertile for years, she persists in prayer, and, and she takes it to the tabernacle. And, and she, before God pulls, pours out her heart's desire, and he answers her prayer. Not every prayer gets answered the way we would like it to. Um, not every faithful prayer gets answered the way we would like it to. Hers did. And she celebrated and we saw in the beginning of chapter 2 last week, she begins to sing. She begins to praise the Lord in song. And those lyrics to that song are recorded. I'm not going to go back. We read the whole thing last week. I'm not going to do that tonight. But I do want to just pick up a snippet at the very end of her song. This is 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. Uh, she says this, Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. Those who fight against the Lord, God's enemies, God's opponents. And what if those opponents that Hannah is praying about, what if those enemies of God that Hannah is praying about, what if they are not foreign invaders? What if it's not a, a pagan king? What if it's not wicked businessmen around Israel exploiting the poor, what if the people who have set themselves up as enemies of God turn out to be the priests? Those who are supposed to lead the nation spiritually. 1 Samuel 2, we'll start in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were scoundrels, 
They had no respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests. Whenever anyone entered to offer sacrifice, Eli's sons would send over a servant with a three-pronged fork. While the meat of the sacrificed animal was still boiling, the servant would stick the fork into the pot and demand that whatever it brought up be given to Eli's sons, i.e. given to them. All the Israelites who came to worship at Shiloh, all the Israelites were treated this way. Sometimes the servant would would come even before the animal's fat had been burned on the altar. He would demand raw meats before it had been boiled so that it could be used for roasting. The man offering the sacrifice might reply, take as much as you want, but you know this is the law of Moses here, the fat must be burned for, first. Then the servant would demand, no, give it to me now, or I'll take it by force. This is going on at church, okay? <laughs> So the sin of these young men was very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. They're not doing their job very well. They have a pretty important job. And so these priests, their job description included some of the things that I do, you know, teaching the Word of God, uh, but also just kind of taking care of things. They were Levites, taking care of things around the temple, making sure everything was set up, everything was in order. And as we saw with Hannah last week, God's people would, on very special occasions, they would travel from all parts of Israel to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, to offer sacrifices, to worship the Lord, to pray to the Lord. And so this offering of sacrifices when they would go up to Shiloh included uh, sacrificing animals, the killing of animals. Now, I would venture to say, this is Texas, so probably it's safe to say most of us eat meat. There probably aren't a lot of vegans here, maybe a couple. Um, But we know theoretically that an animal has to die for us to enjoy our supper, Um, but we don't give a lot of thought to how that transpires. We don't necessarily want to see how that transpires, and if you send me a link on YouTube to the butcher, I'm I'm not going to watch it. I'll be honest with you. I just want to enjoy my steak in peace, okay? Or we buy the bag of frozen chicken at Kroger, and we don't really think about all that went into that bag of frozen chicken breasts ending up there in the freezer section at the supermarket. We're kind of removed from the violence. I'm thankful for that, by the way. The sacrificial system was different. Um, It was designed to bring you face-to-face with the violence. You needed to see it. You needed to smell it. You needed to hear it. You needed to experience the ugliness, and it was designed for you to do that in a very personal way. God is holy, God is holy. And to come into his presence is a serious thing. It's a humbling thing. And we, worshipers, we are sinners. We come into God's presence as sinners. And an Israelite would would need to, would be obligated to acknowledge their sin, not just in an ambiguous sin is bad sort of way, but acknowledge their sin, confess their sin. And the ugliness of sin 
gave us this connection, this picture of sin and death being connected. Sin and the ugliness being connected. Um, that connection needed to be clear. It was clear, believe me, at the, temp- at the temple and then the tabernacle earlier. So when sin was confessed, an animal would be killed as a sort of substitute. So I'm not going to die. The animal is going to die as sort of a symbolic substitute for me. And so the blood would then be sprinkled on the altar of God and some of the animal would be completely destroyed in the fire, burned up. Uh, uh, Another part of the animal, this is kind of cool, another part of the animal would be cooked up and would be served as a sort of fellowship meal, symbolic of the fellowship that the worshiper could now enjoy with God. And part of that meal was reserved for the Levites. That was proper and that was good. And so they could enjoy some of that as a result of the transaction. Now what happened around the altar seems incredibly um, serious and, and solemn. And it is all orchestrated, carefully orchestrated. Read the book of Leviticus. Carefully orchestrated to point to great spiritual truths. Themes, fellowship with God, seriousness of sin, forgiveness that sinners desperately need, um, the reverence that we owe to God, and ultimately pointing to, right, the, the great sacrifice, the true sacrifice of God's only Son, which would one day make all of this obsolete, the entire sacrificial system no longer necessary because the perfect sacrifice had come. Well, Eli's sons, these priests had, and we're told this in the text, they had no regard for God. No priests. (laughs) No regard for God. No concern for the importance of the role they had been privileged to inherit through the generations from God. No interest at all in really doing anything but exploiting the worshiper, using the people who were around the tabernacle to achieve their purposes. Remember verse 12, the sons of Eli were scoundrels and had no respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests. How they wondered on a daily basis. How could they leverage their position and power there at the tabernacle to benefit themselves? They were not happy. They were not satisfied with what the law provided for them. They were not content with getting their share. They wanted more. And so they developed these protocols. We have some of it described here. Um, They developed these protocols to ensure that they got what they wanted in violation not only of what, uh, of the spirit of the moment, of the sacrificial moment, but also direct violation of different commands of God. They would take food out of the pot before it was even cooked. They would take their portion of God's sacrifice before God got his portion of the sacrifice. 
And on some occasions, if, if a worshiper protested, we are told they would threaten physical violence. Verse 17, so the sin of these young men was very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. So these brothers use this unique God-given position to exploit the worshipers, to fill their stomachs, and that wasn't the half of it. There's more. There were these young ladies who would help out around the tabernacle, around the entrance of the tabernacle, uh, you know, hostesses welcoming people, doing jobs that needed to be done out front. And uh, Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, they would regularly, we are told, seduce these young ladies and have sex with these young ladies. Hey, I'm the high priest's son, you know. And they would use that to go to bed with these girls. And their dad was complicit. He knew everything that was going on. Uh, he, would, he would protest verbally, but do nothing to stop them, allow it to continue. And just let this sink in. He was the high priest. Knows everything that's going on. Does not stop it. And he is the high priest. Verses 22 to 25. Now, Eli was, was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance, that lets us know this isn't all that they were doing. There was more, but for example, he knew that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. Eli said to them, I've been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you are doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop, my sons. The reports I hear uh, among the Lord's people are not good. I'd say that's the understatement of the year. If someone sins against another person, God can mediate for the guilty party. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? But Eli's sons would not listen to their father, for, their, for the Lord was already planning to put them to death. So we know, historically, we've brought this up several times uh, after Joshua really moving into Judges, uh, about kind of the spiritual low tide moments uh, of Israel. Things were not good spiritually at this time. Um, and maybe this gives us a little insight into part of the problem. I, I mean, these are the priests. These are, these are the white hats. These are the good guys. Uh, and they are called to lead and to serve spiritually and to teach truth. And they are either the ones that we are presented with, including the boss, the high priest, they are either rotten to the core, scoundrels, or uh, they are, so enemies of God, or they are complicit in that. Offering a benign rebuke, but then allowing things to go on. And so more historical context, what the sons of Eli were doing, uh, their sexual exploits, they begin to look don't they? A whole lot like what went on at the pagan temples and shrines of the day where there would be temple prostitutes, shrine prostitutes. 
where sexual perversion was built into the worship of these pagan gods and these fertility cults. And so here we have the symbolic center of Yahweh worship on planet Earth, the place above any other place, the tabernacle where God's name is to be revered, where the things of God are to be treated with proper respect. And this place has become a place of moral darkness and selfishness and at best equivocation, passing a blind eye, a place where the holiness of God has become at best, an afterthought. And so we're told, judgment is coming. Chilling words. God was reserving judgment for these boys. God will not sit back. God will not allow this to continue to happen. He will not allow his priests to pilot the plane into the side of a mountain. He loves his people too much. He's zealous for his holiness as well. So to sacrifice the nation on the altar of this family's greed and lusts, no, not going to happen. So judgment is coming for Eli and for his boys. little good news tonight, though. There's something happening a little bit in the background. It's, it's mentioned in chapter 2. It's quiet, though. Samuel is growing up. Samuel lives there in the tabernacle compound, regularly visited, we're told, by his mother, who every year would, would hand, like quilt, a, a little jacket for Samuel. She had this contact with her son. She was so proud of her son, and she was still taking care of her son. And Samuel is growing up, and, and we're told in verse 26 something about Samuel. I like this. Meanwhile, lets us know there's something else happening and I, for one, am grateful there's something else happening besides just Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew taller and grew in favor with the Lord and with people. Does that remind you of anybody? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same description is going to be applied to Jesus. Same description is going to be, uh, going to be predicated of the great high priest Luke chapter 2, verse 52, speaking of Jesus as a child, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Samuel and Jesus, some parallels there. So something good is happening. Back to Eli, back to the bigger story in chapter 2. He is the, he is the negligent father. He isn't committing the sins but he knows they're happening, and he says something but does nothing. Not even a slap on the wrist, no punishment for his sons, just, just a talk. You know, don't do that. People are talking about you guys. And one author uh, I read this week, one author calls Eli good but weak. I think that's a pretty good description of him. Good but weak. It turns out it is, it's not good or righteous at all to be good and weak. It's not good or righteous at all to be good and weak. You see, he 
has enjoyed the spoils of their sins. We're going to be told a few chapters later that he is literally obese. He has been getting fat off of all of this extra meat, off of all of this extra stuff that his boys have been pulling out of the sacrifices. And he is their father. He's also their boss, right? He's also their boss. He's the high priest of God. And ultimately, this is a story of a man choosing his boys over God. Which raises a question for all believing parents. I think this is a big one. Who comes first, God or the kids? One of the best things that we can do for our children is to not put them first. One of the best things you can do to raise independent, mature, strong, non-self-centered, service-oriented children is to not put them first. Children thrive when they see that the Lord comes first. They see that the spouse comes next. And that they're close behind, but they're behind. Well, he did them no favor by just allowing the wickedness to continue. By taking their side, he did them no favor. In fact, he's setting them up for death. And he did a disservice to the nation as well. So God fires a warning shot. God loves us. And God, he fires these warning shots. Verse 27. One day, a man of God, a prophet, came to Eli and gave him this message from the Lord. So this is going to be God talking through this prophet. I revealed myself to your ancestors when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. I chose your ancestor, Aaron, from among all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar to burn incense and to wear the priestly vest as he served me. And I assigned these sacrificial offerings to you, priests. And he's talking to Eli, remember. So why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people, Israel. So the negligent parent is not getting off here. Therefore, verse 30, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I promise that your branch of the tribe of Levi would be my priests forever, but... I will honor those who honor me. I will despise those who think lightly of me. And the time is coming when I will put to an end your family so it will no longer serve as my priest. All the members of your family will die before their time. None will reach old age. You will watch with envy as I pour out prosperity on the people of Israel. But no members of your family will ever live out their days. Those who survive will live in sadness and grief, and their children will die a violent death. And to prove that what I have said will come true, I will cause your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to die on the, on the same day. Then I will raise up a 
faithful priest who will serve me and do what I desire. I think it's talking about Samuel, foreshadowing Jesus as well. I will raise up a faithful priest who will serve me and do what I desire. I will establish his family. They will be priests to my anointed kings forever. Then all of your surviving family will bow before him, begging him for money and food. Please, they will say, give us jobs. We want our jobs back. You know, give us jobs among the priests so that we will have enough food to eat. Hophni and Phinehas are going to die, and they are going to die on the same day in a few chapters. Eli, obese, off of the surplus portions he's been getting out of the tabernacle, upon receiving the news of his son's premature deaths, he will be so stunned that he will literally fall out of his chair, break his neck and die. Samuel, the one devoted to God, is going to step into the role of spiritual leader of the nation and he will be the anointer of the first two kings of Israel. Israel hasn't had any kings yet. He will anoint Saul and he will anoint David. And as we wrap up tonight, I think there are some some things this story just kind of invites us to consider. Heavy things, but good things. One is for parents, believing parents. And it's just kind of a reminder, our primary job, primary job is to get our family to heaven. If you do that well, you have been successful as a mother, as a father. Help your children fall in love with God Help them believe the gospel and put that on as their story. You are a success. You can't make that happen. You can't do anything that will guarantee that will happen. But you can encourage it, and you must encourage it. And it's not just about getting the kids to church on Sunday. It's not just about reading a Bible story at bedtime. Uh, Those are good things. It's not just helping them with their memory verses. Those are good things. More than any of that stuff, more than anything, and I think we see it in this story, we need to model for them what discipleship looks like. Not just tell them or say it, but model it for them. And it is pretty cool at this church. You get to see a lot of people doing this uh, for their children. It's it's pretty neat. Um, I know the Guatemala teen group and parents are meeting tonight and there's been a a waiting list like of parents that want to go they want to go with their kids to Guatemala this summer and so there's we filled up and there's a waiting list Um, that's pretty neat Uh, I know that we serve together in projects like Transform Dallas and different ministries of the church and and you'll see parents not only ministering to their children, but actually ministering alongside their children. And, I mean, we all could tell stories tonight, and that would be cool, but I'll just share one. I, I, just not too long ago, I, I remember across the street, I was getting ready to come over here and preach one Sunday night, and I saw one of our young mothers <laughs> doing friend speak, sharing the gospel with her Chinese reader, and they're sitting there, and they're reading the gospel of Luke, and this young mother, she has a baby strapped to her, Okay, And she's got two of her slightly older children playing on the carpet beside them. And I thought, now that is something. Those kids, they're going to remember that. That makes an imprint. 
That's some mighty fine parenting right there, I would say. And so we model what a life of discipleship looks like. And yeah, your kids need a good education. Um, Sure, it would be nice to be able to give them uh, some new clothes for school. It would be nice to take them on a ski trip over spring break. I mean, that would be cool. Uh, it'd be great to, to, you know, pay a little bit extra to, to get them on that select team and all of that stuff so they can excel in sports. But there is nothing that comes close to the importance of the primary mission, which is to help them know the Lord, to love the Lord, to serve the Lord. And so Hannah did this. Hannah did this for Samuel. Eli did not do this, apparently. The information we have. Didn't do a good job of this with Hophni and Phinehas. Again, there's no guarantee. I think that's important to state here. No guarantee that you can, by being an amazing parent, by doing everything possible to help your children know the Lord, no guarantee that they will end up following the Lord. They will, at some point, make their own choices. That is all very true. But that is not an excuse to let parents off the hook. In fact, that is a motivation to call parents to accountability because we only have a short time with our children in the home. And we need to use that time as best we can to keep priorities straight, to provide everything possible for them to connect with the Lord. And next, so kind of moving on there, I think this story makes it very clear also that uh, things of God are not to be trifled with. There are enormous consequences to taking God lightly, and those consequences may not happen on day one. They may not happen three months later, but they are coming. The story reminds us of that. I have no idea how many young ladies Phineas and Hophni slept with outside the temple. And I have no idea how many pounds of food they hauled out of God's sacrifices to, to fatten themselves up. I have no idea. What I do know is judgment was coming. It was coming. And just because it looks like somebody may be getting away with something now... It certainly doesn't mean they're going to continue to get away with it. Verses 30 to 31. I will honor, God says, those who honor me. And I will despise those who, what? They think lightly of me. The time is coming when I will put an end to your family. Sin will be judged. There are consequences to wickedness. Some of those consequences might be here. They cer- in this life, they certainly were for Eli and his family. Um, and some of those consequences may be on the day of judgment. Next, I would say, I think you kind of step back from the story and you can see that we need to be careful. And talking especially to church leaders, to religious or spiritual leaders here, need to be careful about taking the path of least resistance when dealing with sticky, sinful situations in the community of God. I don't like conflict. My wife knows this about me. She's helped me grow in this area. Uh, I don't like conflict. I, for years, was a serial conflict avoider. Uh, But there are times when conflict is good, 
when conflict is healthy and when certainly conflict is right. And so to avoid confrontation with your children uh, so that they grow up unchallenged, that doesn't help them. And then turning to the church, the family of God, to avoid confrontation in the church when we see sin, that's not good. So be aware. I, I would say just a word of caution because some of us grew up in, in, in maybe communities where conflict was almost a, a sport, right? I mean, where conflict in our home church maybe was something there was a little too much of that. But you don't want the pendulum to swing all the way over to where you avoid it because the path of least resistance does not honor Christ. Overlooking sin never honors Christ. Never does. Forgiving sin does. Showing grace does. Overlooking sin does not. So finally, and this is some good news. Just because it looks at a particular moment in time like sin and evil and darkness are racing to victory, are carrying the day, that doesn't mean that God has checked out on us. And I love these little details as you work through the story. Um, the author seems very intent on reminding us, while this is the big story that's going on right now, God is doing something. And in this case, it has to do with Samuel, the one asked of God, literally what his name means. 1 Samuel 2, 11, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord. Verse 21, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And then verse 26, Samuel continued to grow in favor with the Lord. So God's got some good things going on in the story. He's at work even during these dark days. And eventually, this boy will grow up. Uh, he will be the anointer of Saul, the first king of Israel. He will be the anointer of David, the second king of Israel. And, of course, we know one of David's descendants is King Jesus, the one who will reign forever and Jesus, more than a king, Jesus becomes the sacrifice of God, the end to the sacrificial system. Thank God. And through Jesus, this perfect high priesthood is going to be installed. We will have a high priest who understands our weaknesses. He's been tempted like us. But a high priest who, unlike Eli, has never fallen short, has never succumbed to temptation. And so in Jesus, we sinners, we find forgiveness through his sacrifice. Through Jesus, we, we find a listening ear who when we pray about the things that we struggle with and the sins that torment us, he understands. He's been tempted. He knows what it's like. And that gives us a lot of reasons, right, to gather and be grateful and worship. And let's do that now. Let's stand together and let's worship together.